welcome to another episode of the Reformation Roundtable podcast. My name is Joe Stout, and this podcast is a ministry of Christ Covenant Church in Lewis County, Washington. During each episode, you will discover the sermons, exhortations, discussions, and interviews from our various weekly gatherings. Christ Covenant Church is a historically reformed and evangelical church that has been serving the greater Centralia Chehalis area since May of 2021. We meet for worship each Lord's Day to sing psalms and hymns, confess our historic faith, hear the word faithfully proclaimed, and celebrate together the Lord's Supper. Throughout the week, we go out into the world to build the kingdom of Christ right here in Lewis County. If this sounds like a vision for you, we would love to have you join us. Head on over to lewiscounty.church, that is lewiscounty.church, where you will find a calendar of events as well as current times and locations for worship. Please enjoy the following audio. Our scripture meditation for worship this morning is going to come from Psalm 133. A song of ascents of David. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Let us pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, it is indeed good and pleasant when we dwell in unity. We pray that we might dwell together in unity among our households and in this church. As Joe reminded us in his email, there is much work to do for the kingdom, but it is counted as blessing for us to do it together. All too often, there is disunity in the body, and so we pray that you would knit us together in our work and our praise. Anoint us with the oil of blessing, and may we lift our hearts to you in worship and be called blessed. Soli Deo Gloria, and amen. Amen. Please rise with me as we worship the triune God. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And also to you. The Lord is near to all who call upon him. To all who call upon him in truth, he fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. So last Sunday, last Lord's Day, we went through the Ten Commandments in our Confession of Faith through the Heidelberg Catechism. And the beginning of that question was... What is the law of the Lord? And after this, we proceeded to go through the Ten Commandments as given in Exodus 20. These laws are true for us today, just as they were for Israel in their day, with one very big difference. The Israelites had not been shown the full picture of their salvation uh, from death, but they had only the promise that God had given them. We have seen this promise realized in Jesus Christ, our Lord. However, what do the commandments for those who are saved versus those who are not have to do? How does that do and relate to us? So recall from the Psalms that we are to delight in God's law, resting in it day and night. How do we do that, though, when we tend to break a handful of his commandments by noontime almost every day? I had some notes that I uh, wrote down from a Table Talk article that was from this month, and I wanted to share some of the notes and, and some of the passages through that. Paul, 
wrote a passage in Romans 7 that talks about the law and sin. Romans 7, verses 7 through 12 says, What then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if, we had not been, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Paul's writings can be a bit of a head trip, admittingly, for me at least, but let's try to wrap our heads around what he's saying. First, there is the question of, is the law sin? And the answer is, of course, no. He makes that clear. So what does he mean that he would not have known sin except for the law? Well, how would we know the gospel of Jesus Christ apart from the preaching of the word? Christ is revealed in nature, so to that degree, we know that God exists, but we don't know the saving power of the gospel until we hear it preached. Only God's word and the Holy Spirit can reveal that to us. So when the law was revealed, it also revealed sin. If God had not said, do not covet, then man perhaps would not have realized that he was coveting. I think that was Paul's point. So how does the law help us? Why is it that the commandment that became death to Paul good? If we are left in our own sin without the law, then we would continue to sin without the illumination of the law. But for those with the Spirit of God indwelling in them, the sin is made aware and repentance is initiated. We die to sin but are made alive to Christ. It is also important to remember the order of things. God first saved the Israelites from the bondage of slavery before he gave them the law. Likewise, the law is folly to those who are not saved. The unregenerate person hears the law and scoffs, while the regenerate hears and recognizes the inadequacy of our frame and the need for the saving grace of Jesus. Paul explains in Romans 7 that in the hands of sinners, the law can bring only condemnation. When the law comes to fallen human beings, it cannot generate obedience. In fact, it has the opposite effect of inciting sin depending on our, and deepening our guilt and corruption. This is not the law's fault, for the law in itself is holy, righteous, and good, as stated in verse 12. Instead, the problem is us, our sin, our corruption. Sin misuses everything, twisting even what is good to make it an occasion for sin. Apart from divine grace, sinners will pervert God's law, using it for evil ends. Paul's example is the Tenth Commandment. When fallen people hear that God does not want them to covet, they covet all the more. If we are seeking to make ourselves right with God by keeping his law, we are engaged in a futile endeavor, for we cannot keep his law with the perfection he requires. We can be in a right relationship with God only through faith. Keeping the Ten Commandments and the rest of the divine law, then, becomes something we do to thank the Lord for saving us and not something we do to be saved. With this in mind, let us come before God in prayer and confess our sins of self-righteousness and covetousness as we come to a holy and mighty God for forgiveness. So as you are able...
Please kneel with me in confession. Isaiah 55, verses 6 through 7 says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. People of God, you have humbled yourselves in faith. Now hear the good news and believe. Your sins are forgiven through Christ. The sermon text this morning is from Psalm 2. These are the words of God. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree the Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings. Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and ye perish from the way, when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you for the Psalms. We thank you for how they embolden us to live and to pray and to sing of your Lordship over all creation. We ask that you would bless now the preaching of this word. Make it to come with the demonstration of power and not in word only. For we ask this in Jesus' name. And amen. Amen. Please be seated. The year is 392 A.D. 392 A.D. The Roman Empire is still dominant and extends across the Mediterranean. The emperor is Theodosius I, and he has made it his task to unite and establish Christianity as the religion of the empire. Pagan temples are torn down. It becomes illegal to offer pagan sacrifices. And new laws are enacted to suppress heresy and idolatry. Just a few years prior, the Nicene Creed, which our churches still confess, was written and reaffirmed in Constantinople. The Arian heresy, which denied the Son's eternality, the full deity of Jesus Christ, was to be snuffed out. And Nicene Orthodox Christianity was to become the public religion of the empire. This was the goal of the most powerful man in the world. This was the goal of Theodosius I, and this was the age of the first Christendom. Now fast forward to our day, and this idea that an empire could become Christian, or that a state or a county could become Christian has fallen on hard times, even especially amongst Christians. The modern view goes that we have separation of church and state, do we not? This must mean a separation from religion and politics, as if the government could be neutral and simply tolerate all religions equally. You want to worship Allah? Okay. 
You want to worship the Pantheon? Okay. You want to do yoga in the park? Okay. This is the great myth of secularism, the great myth of neutrality, and it is a great misunderstanding of the First Amendment. We are a couple hundred years into this American experiment, and more and more we are seeing that the center cannot hold. In fact, there isn't really a center anymore. If uh, 2020 taught you anything, it should be that there is no center in America anymore. We are not all agreed as to who or what should be the supreme principle, that is to say, God, by which our nation and commonwealth is ordered. Even amongst Christians who confess the Nicene Creed, we are not all agreed as to what role, if any, Christianity should play in the public realm. Well, this is an issue that Psalm 2 directly addresses. And it is my contention, it is my thesis in this sermon, that Psalm 2 is an invitation to Christendom. Psalm 2 is an invitation to Christendom. It is an invitation to all nations, to all governments, and especially to all rulers to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. And as we will see, this is a far more public and explicit confession than most Americans, most evangelicals are comfortable with. So let's walk through this text together and allow the Lord to discomfort us. We'll begin with an outline of the text, the literary structure of this psalm. Uh, If you want to follow along with me, there are 12 verses in Psalm 2. It's a pretty simple division. There are four sections and there are three verses each. 12 verses, four sections, three verses long. Uh, In the first section, verses 1 to 3, the psalmist, David here, he asks, why do the heathen rage? And then he goes on to describe a conspiracy to rebel against the Lord. We're We'll call this first section, The Nations Conspire, verses 1 to 3. Section 2, verses 4 to 6, God responds. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh, the Lord shall have them in derision, and so on. We'll call this second section, The Lord Responds. Section 3, verses 7 to 9, we get this proclamation or decree from the king. We'll call this section, The King Proclaims. And then finally, section 4, verses 10 to 12, we have what I will call an invitation to Christendom. So there's your outline. Nations conspire, the Lord responds, the king proclaims an invitation to Christendom. Starting in verse 1, it says this, Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? Uh, In this opening verse, we are given a contrast to something that uh, we actually just sang about in Psalm 1. And there are a ton of connections between Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. So this is the intro to the whole Psalter. And uh, some commentators have even seen these two Psalms as essentially being one together. Part 1, Part 2. There's a bunch of uh, connections at the grammar level, at the concept level. But think about, for those of you who know Psalm 1... What is Psalm 1 about? How would you summarize what Psalm 1 is about? Well, we might say that it's about the blessed man. And what is the blessed man like? He's like a tree, right? 
A tree that's planted by rivers of water, it brings forth fruit in his season. His leaf does not wither. Whatsoever he does shall prosper. However, the ungodly are not so. So in Psalm 1, we have this contrast between the righteous and the wicked. Blessed man's this fruitful tree. The ungodly, they're like this, this chaff that's blown about by the wind. Now, if you look at Psalm 1, what makes the blessed man blessed? What is it that he does? Verse 2 of Psalm 1, it says, But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and he meditates on it day and night. Now, uh, in Hebrew, this word for meditate in Psalm 1-2 is the same word that we have here in Psalm 2-1 that gets translated in, in a lot of uh, translations as imagine. Imagine. So you could, in a certain sense, translate this. Why do the nations uh, meditate, imagine, vanity? So we're given this contrast in these two psalms between two subjects of meditation, imagination, contemplation. Two things that a man or a nation could meditate upon. You can meditate upon the law of God or you can meditate upon vanity. Moving outward, we could say that the nation that meditates on God's law will be a blessed nation. They'll bear fruit in every season. Whereas the nation that meditates upon vanity, that imagines vain things for itself, will like vanity be blown away like chaff before the wind. What kind of nation do we live in today? What is the meditation of Americans? What is your meditation? Is it the law of God? Do you think about all the time, Exodus 20 to 23, the book of Deuteronomy and the laws in it? Or do you meditate upon vanity? Vanity. Are we obeying, as Christians, Deuteronomy 6, which says, And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart, and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children. Thou shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, when thou walkest by the way, when thou liest down, when thou risest up. Thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand. They shall be as frontlets between thine eyes, and thou shalt write them upon the posts of thy house and on thy gates. Translation, there's scripture everywhere. The law of God everywhere. Do we as parents immerse ourselves and our children in the scriptures? When they go to school, are they being taught of God or are they being taught like the world to meditate upon a million vain and trifling things? There will be no blessed nation. There will be no blessed Lewis County if there are not first here blessed households of faith who give themselves to this holy meditation rather than trifling upon the borders of eternity. So what kind of person are you? What kind of nation are we? What do we imagine and meditate upon? We see in the next two verses what accompanies those who meditate on vain things. What do you think? Namely, rebellion against God. Is it any wonder that in our institutions of education where people are meditating, that we have so much rebellion. Vain meditation leads to rebellion. It always does. Verse 2 says, The kings of the earth set themselves, the rulers take counsel together, against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords 
from us. They want to throw off the law of God. Notice that the target of this rebellion in Psalm 2 is against Yahweh. It's against his Messiah, his anointed, or in Trinitarian terms, we could say this is rebellion against both the Father and the Son. In Acts 4, we are given an inspired commentary on these verses. Psalm 2, along with Psalm 110, are the two most quoted and referenced psalms in the New Testament. So it's important that we understand these words in these verses. So I'm going to read a lengthy section from Acts 4, which expands better than I can upon what Psalm 2 is meaning, what its reference is. Just to jog your memory, uh, the context of Acts 4 is that uh, the apostles have been preaching. In Acts 2, uh, the Spirit comes down, uh, Peter is preaching boldly, he heals a man, I believe in Acts 3, and all of Jerusalem is in riot. They are boldly preaching, and uh, the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, the chief priests, they, they say, you apostles must stop preaching in the name of Jesus. They say, gag order. No more of this. How do the apostles respond? <laughs> we will not comply. <laughs> we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. So, This is the context for Acts 4. Peter and John have just been released, I believe for the second time, and they are reunited with the rest of their company, uh, likely the other apostles. And this is what they say together. This is a very curious uh, text. This is Acts 4. I'll start in verse 25 and go through 31. And when they heard that, the they is uh, their company, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, Thou art God, which hast made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is, who by the mouth of thy servant David has said, Why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? The kings of the earth stood up, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For of a truth, against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together. For to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. And now, Lord, behold their threatenings, and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word, by stretching forth thine hand to heal, and that signs and wonders may be done by the name of thy holy child Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and they spake the word of God with boldness. Uh, This is why we sing the Psalms. When they had prayed, the place was shaken. They were filled with the Holy Ghost, and they spake the word of God with boldness. So this is what the fulfillment of Psalm 2 looks like in time and in history. And if we kind of make our connections here, the apostles identify the kings of the earth in Psalm 2-2 as referring specifically to Herod and Pontius Pilate. So uh, Herod the Great, he tried to kill Jesus as a baby. Herod Antipas, he's the one who mocked Jesus before his crucifixion. Pontius Pilate, he represented the Roman authority who possessed the death penalty. And Herod, he represents the Jews. So that's your, your players here. Furthermore, the apostles identify the heathen who rage, in verse 2, as the Gentiles. And the people who imagine a vain thing are 
uh, in verse 27, identified as the people of Israel. Think about that. Psalm 1, the people of God are supposed to be meditating on the law of God, and here they say, the people who are imagining vanity are the people of Israel. So that's the historical circumstance of Psalm 2. I want to draw your attention to what the apostles say about all of this in verse 28. They say that this uh, international conspiracy to crucify Christ was according to God's sovereign and predestinating counsel. For to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. That is what Psalm 2 foretells. It's what happens with the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And if you think about the import of their interpretation of providence, of something they are, they are seeing, they uh, know Psalm 2, they've seen Christ crucified, resurrected, ascended, and they say this is what the hand and the counsel of God determined beforehand to be done. There is nothing that is outside God's sovereign counsel. Whatever the United Nations or NATO or Bill Gates or the World Economic Forum is planning, whatever covert or overt organization appears to be plotting and pulling the strings, none of them can thwart the sovereign counsel of Almighty God. Think about this. If God, if God could turn death inside out by the resurrection of his son, and if he could turn the most grievous conspiracy in human history into the, the salvation of the world, then you can be sure that this same God will make all other lesser evils to serve your everlasting good. God subordinates all things to himself. He makes the serpent to devour his own tail. He makes death its own executioner. He turns the crucifixion of Christ into the suicide of Satan. This is the infinite wisdom of God. So yes, there are conspiracies. No, they cannot thwart God's plans. Yes, we should be alert, but the lion's share of our time ought to be spent in prayer, in good works, in loving one another, in building up the kingdom, in raising our children, and not fretting about the future. Why? Because while the nations and rulers plot like they always have, this is nothing new, while they plan their, their one-world utopia, While billionaires and big tech and big farm and big government and and big Eva, for all we know, what is the Lord doing while they conspire and plot and imagine vanity? Verse 4. He that sits in the heavens laughs. This is how God responds to the proud imaginations of men. He that sitteth in in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. We should ask ourselves, if this is how God responds, how do we respond? Are we able to laugh with God knowing that he is infinitely more powerful than men? What does the Bible say about men? It says some glorious things, right? Psalm 8, right? Man is this pinnacle of creation, but it also says some less than flattering things about men. Psalm 39.5 says, man at his best state is altogether vanity. Psalm 62.9, men of high degree are a lie to be laid in the balance. They are altogether lighter than vanity. Man is more vain than vanity itself. And so what are the plans of evil 
men who are as ants beneath the boot of Christ. They tried to build Babel. What did God do? They tried to ascend the heavens. They tried to dethrone him before. What did God do? He says, you're going to speak uh, Chinese and Portuguese. (laughs) He who sits in the heavens laughs. Do we laugh with God? God also holds these conspirators in derision. I believe some translations say, Mark mocks them to scorn. Uh, Verse 5, Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. One of the questions we might ask here is, how does God speak to his enemies? What does speaking to them in his wrath look like? Well, if uh, we're thinking like an apostle, and we know that Psalm 2 is being fulfilled in the first century, and we've got names, right? Herod, Pontius Pilate. We might be able to deduce from the book of Acts what God speaking in his wrath looks like. And if you were to read through the whole book of Acts with this question in mind, you would see that God speaks in at least two ways to his enemies. He speaks first by providence and second by preaching. God speaks to his enemies by providence and by preaching. By providence looks like signs and wonders, miracles, people being healed. It looks like demons being cast out. It looks like Herod being eaten by worms and then dying. It looks like the destruction of Jerusalem and the Roman civil wars. If you read uh, the Roman historians on this time period from about uh, 30 to uh, 73 AD, uh, there's a number of historians that were eyewitnesses, Tacitus, Suetonius. Uh, Even they acknowledge that all of these signs and wonders that were happening in the heavens, even the pagans knew that this is a sign of God's wrath. They didn't worship the triune God, but they knew these comets in the sky, these uh, what we call natural disasters, were the hand of Almighty God. In a certain sense, uh, the Roman pagans were far more pious than American materialists. It's embarrassing. They knew that God was displeased. What does Romans 1 say? The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against the ungodliness of men. And yet God speaks in these providences to call his people to repent. So that's how God speaks by providence. He also speaks to his enemies, especially by preaching. And this looks like the Apostle Peter saying things like, you killed the Messiah. You killed the Prince of Life. You conspired to murder an innocent man, and the blood of the Son of God is on your hands. Nevertheless, he died for you. What did Jesus say when he was on the cross? What did he ask his father? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. They conspire, and yet they don't know that they are actually bringing about their own salvation. Isn't that kind of crazy? This is the infinite wisdom of God. He makes even our stupid, sinful, foolish things to serve the good of those who love him. We should take comfort in this. So Peter says, you are guilty and you can be forgiven. 
Christ died for murderers, so repent and be baptized for the remission of sins, you and your household. God speaks the gospel to his enemies. It says in 1 Timothy 2.3 that God desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. This includes the very people that crucified Christ. So, ma- so no matter what uh, you have done, whatever sins you have committed, if God could forgive those who murdered his beloved son, what objection do you have? God can forgive and wipe away all of your transgressions as well. This is the gospel message. Are we not all enemies of God? Were we not all at one time born under his wrath? But God speaks to us in providence and in preaching. He has set his king upon the holy hill of Zion, and that king reigns not just to crush you, but to give you life. Moving to our third section, the king proclaims. We have this shift in the speaker uh, of the psalm. So verses 7 to 9, these verses are placed upon the lips of Christ. It says, I will declare the decree. The Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron, thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So in verse 7, we have here a description of the Messiah and his origin. He is going to be eternally begotten from the Father and vindicated as such at his resurrection. This is also a passage that is quoted in Acts and alluded to in Romans 1.4. So this is just, this is not any mere man. This is the God-man. In verse 8, he is told to ask for something. He is told to ask for the nations, and the Father is going to give the Son what he desires. And then in verse 9, we are told that he rules these nations with a rod of iron, dashing them into pieces. I want to just unpack these two images, uh, because they're pretty common in Scripture, the rod of iron and and the potter's vessel. Both of these are mentioned frequently. Uh, Isaiah 11.4 says this, But with righteousness shall he judge the poor and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. So notice the connection, rod of iron, rod of his mouth, ruling. And then uh, Revelation 19, this is one of the most glorious uh, portraits in the New Testament of Christ. So he's, he's riding upon this white horse, his robe is dipped in blood, and in verse 15 it says, And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. So what is the rod of iron? Right, God is immaterial, he has no body. We're speaking in analogies here. But the rod is the rod of the word the word that proceeds from the mouth of Christ like a sword. It is the word and breath by which Christ does two things. He slays the wicked and he saves his people. How were you brought to life? By a word. He spoke light into the world. He speaks light into your soul. And how does he slay people? He slays them also by the word. So this is the rod of iron. 
the rod of Christ's mouth. As to uh, the potter's vessel, uh, this is mentioned in Jeremiah. It's picked up in Romans 9. And Romans 9 says that there are vessels that are vessels of wrath made for destruction. And then there are also these vessels of mercy which God prepared for glory. So to summarize, the rod of iron is the rod of the word. And it can either break you into pieces, it can utterly shatter you and cast you into the lake of fire, or it can subdue you unto salvation. You can submit to the inflexible rod of God's righteousness. You can confess that he is Lord, your shepherd king. And if you do this, you can then say with Psalm 23, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. That rod is not going to change. It's not going to uh, bend in any way. What are you going to do in relation to the rod? Will it be your comfort? Will it be your salvation? Or will it be your destruction? So this is how Christ rules. You'll notice his reign is different than other kings. He reigns just by his word. We come now to our fourth and, and final section of the psalm, which I said is an invitation to Christendom. And here the speaker shifts back to David, and he gives this inspired warning to those who are in positions of authority and government on earth. So just imagine us going to Olympia and uh, reading this to our rulers. Verse 10, Be wise now therefore, O ye kings. Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and ye perish from the way. When his wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are all they that put their trust in him. Again, notice how it ends with blessed, uh, bookending Psalm 1. There are five commands here that God gives to civil magistrates. And these apply at every time and every place because all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus Christ. So if we desire a blessed nation, here are uh, the five things that Christ commands magistrates to do. I'll just run through these uh, briefly. Number one, kings are told to be wise. Is this so much to ask? Where does wisdom come from? All the children know. Where does wisdom come from? Yeah, how do you get it? The fear of the Lord. Right? This is the beginning of wisdom. And if you do not fear God, you're not going to be wise. Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.15 that the scriptures are able to make thee wise unto salvation. So we say uh, to the kings, be wise. Meaning, you need to fear the Lord. That is the beginning of wisdom. Secondly, judges are told to be instructed. No man can judge justly unless he has first internalized the law of the Lord. So judges must be instructed in biblical law and in its modern application. Remember when Paul chastises the Corinthians for their lack of wisdom in these matters? He says, Do ye not know that the saints shall judge the world? And if the world shall be judged by you, are ye unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Know ye not that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? 1 Corinthians 6, 2-3. Just think about this. I don't know how this works, but the saints are going to judge the world. They're going to judge 
angels. And Paul reasons from that judgment that we possess with Christ and will possess in the age to come. He reasons from that and says, can't you guys like solve this financial dispute in the church? Are you dragging each other before godless rulers to settle disputes between brothers? It's better that you're just, uh, uh, that you suffer harm from your brother than to go before unbelievers and have them adjudicate for you. It's a bad testimony when Christians fight with one another. So, the elders of the church should be leading the way in doing this judgment. This is, this is what the elder's job is. If we are not instructed in God's law, how can we expect secular judges to heed our advice when we give them advice? Here's a better way to solve student debt. Here's a better way to solve the drug problem. Here's a better way. We have the law of God. It's got solutions for these problems. So if God commands judges to be instructed, how much more uh, the officers of the church, even all the saints, because you guys are going to judge angels one day. Are you ready to do that? The third thing uh, that uh, magistrates are commanded is to serve the Lord with fear. And this is perhaps the most explicit invitation to Christendom in uh, the Bible. Magistrates are told to serve, that is, worship the one true God. Uh, You don't need to know Hebrew, but there is this word, avad. It's a very common word, and it means serve. It's what uh, Adam is placed in the garden to do. He He is to tend, he is to serve. It's what the priests are commanded to do in the tabernacle. Ye shall serve. In Kings and Chronicles, men and nations are said to either serve the Lord or serve idols. Who do you serve? Whoever you serve is who you worship. And here God is saying, serve the Lord with fear. God commands all men to bow the knee and enter the Lord's service. Because with this service comes number four, true joy. The fourth fourth thing that God commands is that they rejoice with trembling. This is a curious command for magistrates. The king of the universe says, you, a lesser magistrate, are to rejoice with trembling. Christianity is the religion of joy. It is the religion of joy that also is accompanied by holy fear and trembling. Joy and trembling is when you behold something so beautiful that it terrifies you. It's your wedding day. It's when you see the beauty of God and his radiance And then realize that God loves you, that he died for you, and that he chose you before the foundations of the earth, and he could have not chose you. And you had nothing to do with whether he did that or not. That is how you rejoice with trembling, when you are adverted to these realities. You know that sin inverts reality. Sin tells you lies so that you live in this fantasy world But the truth is that God is king. He chose you. He loves you. And there is an eternity of glory that awaits all of those who love him. So is it really a harsh command to tell our rulers, rejoice with trembling? Serve the Lord with fear. Does he not have glorious promises for us? Lastly, They are told to kiss the sun. 
What does this mean? (laughs) Kiss the son. This is another way of saying, humble yourself and be reconciled to your king. Perhaps the best image of this comes from Genesis. You remember the story of Joseph and his brothers? Joseph's brothers had betrayed him. They conspired to kill him. They sold him into slavery, and yet Joseph is resurrected. He rises to the right hand of Pharaoh. He becomes king. And although he could certainly take vengeance when his uh, brothers wandered into Egypt, what does he do? He feeds them. He tests them. He saves them. And he saves the whole world from famine. And upon their repentance in Genesis 45, what do they do? They embrace And they kiss. These brothers who conspired to murder uh, their younger brother because he was the favorite. They kiss the son. And the son kisses them. And he feeds them. This is what Christ has done for his enemies. It's what Christ has done to all of his people. And so Psalm 2 is not just an invitation to Christendom. We could put it more forcefully and say that Psalm 2 is a command for Christendom, a command for kings and nations and all men everywhere to be reconciled to God, to kiss the Son, lest he be angry and ye perish from the way. May the Lord cause our nation to heed this word, and amen. amen. Let me pray for us. Father, when we read the scriptures, we believe We believe that you are reigning, and yet when we open our eyes, it is easy to be discouraged by the manifold wickedness that is all around us. And we say, how long, O Lord? We ask for your judgment, and yet we also ask for mercy. We ask that you who judges the hearts of men would turn them unto you. The only way out from under this judgment is if all men will confess and turn to you. So we ask that you would make us faithful ambassadors. We ask that you would make this church a beacon of light, of unity, of love, and that our love would testify that the Son and the Father and the Spirit are one, and that eternity is coming and the time is short. So will you embolden us by your spirit to preach this good news to men of high esteem and men of low estate. We pray this in Jesus' name, and amen. Amen. And now it's uh, our time to come to the Lord's table together as we talked of unity and we talked of, of, of vanity as well and where the people are at. We want to be united together, and, and there is not a better way to be united together here in the service as we approach the Lord's table together, as God was the Word made flesh. And the Word is that, that rod that breaks us, but that Word brings us together as well. And so now we have Jesus who has become flesh, the Word made flesh for us, so that we might be able to partake of his body and his blood together in unity, one body. So as we do that, We want to join together with our hearts and our minds and think on the Lord Jesus and how he has come to us. We want to have unity together and, and think of the ways that we can be united as one body in this church.
And now we are welcome to Jesus, to his body and blood. Time for the charge and the benediction. The charge is this, to have our scripture everywhere, to remember God's purpose, to remember the law of God and to keep it on our hearts, and to remember that as the nations rage on vainly, that we can serve the Lord with gladness and be blessed. Please stand. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and amen.